Hello, and welcome to Just Another Real Estate Podcast, where we'll speak with Arizona's most successful real estate professionals to better understand their business, current market conditions, team and business building strategies, successes, and challenges. This podcast is brought to you by Dwell Inspect Arizona with your host, Sean Garvey. Welcome to Just Another Real Estate Podcast. Um, today's guest, our guest today, is Corey Michigan with Cambridge Properties. Um, he's got a lot of, uh, irons in the fire and we're going to talk about some of them. So Corey, thank you for being here today. Um, you know, primarily we've met because of, um, you know, real estate dealings and transactions. So of course I want to get into that story. Um, but you've got, you've also got some exciting news to share. Um, and, and if you haven't been paying attention, which I have his, his names and signs are all over Central Phoenix, um, specifically in Lincoln and Camelback, and so on and so forth. So, welcome, Corey. Thanks for being on today. Oh, happy, happy to do it. Happy to do it. Thank you for uh, for taking some time out of your day to do this, and uh, happy to help any way I can. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, y- you've got a lot. You've got a long story. You've got a long history in Arizona. Um, you've been uh, a real estate professional for a long period of time. Um, you have your office up on Tatum, Cambridge Properties. Um, mm-hmm. You've been there for a long time. So you're dug into the, the community here. Apparently, I've been, uh, I've been around for a long time. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> well, uh, well, not, well, not well, that you're... Let, let, not that I'm aging yeah, well, you. Let me, let me step back real quick, because one thing you, you mentioned is that we came across each other through the real estate dealings, but kind of a shameless plug for you. What, what I'll say is... Um, is you actually came into our office mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and worked that relationship and worked and asked and continually asked for that opportunity. And we had a home inspection company that we'd been working with for a number of years that, uh, that, I, that I, I liked the guy. And um, unfortunately, we had some hiccups there and, and through your tenacity and uh, you know, those continual cold calls, you, you went and you earned our business. Uh, and you earned the opportunity, and then you took that opportunity and ran with it. And I think that's kind of, kind of the crux of of real estate, right? It's right. how do I be successful at this? And oftentimes, it's those those cold calls and that reaching out and continually reaching out, and then you don't see the dividends, but you keep doing it, and then all of a sudden you get your opening and that you know you get the crack in the door, and then you push your way through and you take advantage of that. And that's something that you did really, really well uh, to go from a guy who grew up here abandoned Phoenix for the beaches of Hawaii, <laughs> uh, realized you couldn't be a bartender on Waikiki for the rest of your life, yep. came back, got into a home inspection business, um, knowing people who you knew from growing up, but not really having the background in it and, and kind of launching a business that you were doing in Hawaii here in Phoenix. So, you know, kudos to you and what you created there, but. Thank you. Uh, but but going back to me, uh, you know, it's real estate's a family curse, right? It's uh, it's what I grew up with. It's what I've done. My, uh, you know, I, I, a lot of it was osmosis. It was growing up with a family who was doing real estate. It was my brother, who's 15 years my senior, uh, working with him. And you know, anytime I wanted to hang out with him, he, you know, it was, he was taking calls and trying to get deals done. There was a there's a point in time where as a single agent in the nineteen nineties, all he had was a runner and a buyer's agent and an assistant. And what he did is he was doing like 160 transactions a year, just like one guy before Holy we had sense. email and DocuSign and all that stuff. So um, you know, watching him go through that and then, you know, went got my degree uh in all things of youth ministry and came back to Arizona and uh, real estate pays a little better than working in ministry. So I uh, realized that I could support a lot of really good people to do a lot of really good work. Decided to do that instead um, and and take real estate as, as a opportunity to use, use my success to, to help others. Uh, I got to slide back on, on one thing that you said, and, and I've never heard that term before. And again, I'm not. What? I'm not saying that you're old, um, but you've just been in the business, grown up in the business a long time, so you do have a lot of experience in it. Um, what is a runner, and what was their job function? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So a runner, before we had email and DocuSign and all these things, if you were really busy, you couldn't meet your clients to have them sign their contract. Okay. So you would send a runner with the contract <laughs> over to your client so they could sign it. And then that runner would come back to the office, put it in a fax machine to fax it over to the other agent. Um, you know, and that's how we had to do it. I mean, uh, when my brother was doing it and, and really, I think I was, when I first started, in, you know, I got my license in 2000 and I think that was the end, kind of the end of the contract being, it was, it was, you had the, the goldenrod and the pink form, you know, it was like three, you know, carbon copies of the, of the contract. And that's how, that's how you had copies. You know, you left one with your client, you took one with you, you sent one to the buyer's agent or seller's agent, you know, it was like, that's how it was. So, um, yeah, the interweb changed things, made things a lot easier. It did. And, and to hit, uh, you know, 150 transactions, now you'd be pulling your hair out back then, way less efficient, probably less documents and stuff to sign, less legalese back then. But still, that's a that's a massive number. Three-page contract. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No big deal. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think your your agreement to hire you as a home inspector is three pages now. Yeah, it's pretty close. <laughs> and and surprisingly, and to show you the evolution of home inspections, right? When I bought my first condo in in Hawaii, um, and I wasn't a home inspector quite yet, and I but I knew I was going to be, and we we hired a home inspector obviously to inspect the property. And this was 2015 and he was still using the, the three page carbon copy um, report. So he was pretty behind the times, even in home inspections, a lot of people were using software yeah. and photos, but he was still handing it. He handed you a folder, um, you know, white, yellow and orange and then everybody kind of went like what am i going to do with this and i took it because i was like i need to see what my competition's doing <laughs> yeah uh hawaii it's uh it's a fun place where if you want to work just a little bit you'll be successful <laughs> that's true that's true yeah um so you got licensed 2000 um you know becoming a realtor sounds like it was a, a destiny um you know in the cards for you <laughs> What is uh what is the first the family curse your... as I call it? Yeah, uh, how do you uh how do you try and keep up with your brother at that point? It sounds like he's he's leading the charge, and is he splitting off work, or does he say, you know, you got you've got uh, well, you got to prove yourself? No, I was no, I was kind of the the whipping boy. You know, I started yeah. at the bottom. I I you know I was doing project analysis i was running comps for stuff i was doing you know just like the basics right just blocking and tackling so it was a lot of what do you do to be successful and how do you do that just answering the you know hey Corey, what should i price this at okay da, 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 coming up with that um and then as as the market changed we you know, we were getting to this point of where the market was now becoming much more of a uh, um, new homes were starting. And there were a lot of these smaller home builders. So now I was doing a lot of the work on the new home communities and trying to get all of that launched. And, and we had this upward trajectory where we were going from being a regular residential brokerage, traditional home sales to doing new home sales. And that business grew, oh, I don't know, by... You know, from nothing to we were doing 1,200 single family, you know, 1,200 units a year of just new homes. So that was a whole animal that needed to be tamed. Uh, so I was putting those processes in place and helping along the way with that. And then, uh, and and then what what was interesting? What happened was uh, not interesting, sad, interesting, same word, right? Uh, my mom died. So my mom passes away and, and I said, you know, I'm not sure, I'm not sure sales is really where I want to be. Uh, I'm going to take some time. I'm going to move to New York. So leave, move to New York, uh, basically couch surfed for the first few months of living there. 
couldn't find a job in real estate. I wanted to work for real estate developers. Or, you know, I had been doing the analytics work for a while for my brother, so I figured, hey, I'll, I'll be able to get that kind of a job. Well, nobody in New York had ever heard of Colorado Christian University. So it wasn't a degree that conferred a lot of value in New York City. Uh, and, and nobody had heard of Cambridge Properties. And to them, Phoenix, Arizona is kind of where mobsters went to retire. So they didn't, I, I knocked on a lot of doors. I got in front of a lot of people and, and nobody wanted to hire me. So I finally went down to my, um, I went down to one of the restaurants near me and said, Hey, looking to hire, got hired as a waiter. And, uh, and it was a bit soul crushing <laughs> um, and got hired as a waiter. Cause it's not what I went to New York to do. And, um, and then to, to my dad's great credit, you know, I had a guy who was interesting, who was interested in hiring me, but didn't really want to pay me, you know, and I wasn't looking for an internship. Right. So I went to the guy. So I talked to my dad about it and my dad said, Hey, I'll make you a deal. What do you think you need to live in Phoenix or in New York City? And I told him the number at the time. I felt like 50000 is what I needed to live in New York City. And this was mid-2000s, 2004, 2005. And my dad said, okay, go back to the guy and tell him that you need fifty grand to live. And he said, and, and Corey, I'll, I'll front you $25,000. Pay you monthly. But I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna give you 25 grand all at once. You're still young and dumb. So, right. You know, I'd gotten through college. My, I was very blessed. My father offered to pay for college. Made the same offer to all his siblings, uh, and he did. But I was the only guy who got through college in two and a half years because I just realized college wasn't for me. Uh, so I think I saved him some money on that. I got a, I got a 50% scholarship to college. Uh, so my college was running at about seven grand a year. And I got through in two two and a half years, so saved my dad a lot of money. And my dad said, "You know, you got through college quick. We'll call this your master's, and tell the guy you need twenty five grand, and I'll give you the other twenty five grand. And then if he doesn't like you after a year, you know, you quit and go figure something else out. But you'll have your door and foot. You know, you'll have your foot in the door of New York real estate. So I did that for a couple of years." And, uh, and everything was going well and you'll get a kick out of the story. So what happened is, um, now my brother calls me and it's 2006 and Arizona real estate is humming and kicking butt, all this stuff. And my brother says, Hey, Corey, you got to come back to Phoenix. You got to come to Phoenix. Cause here's, you know, all these people that I have working for me in new home sales, they're making like $150,000 a year, which was. You know, like today, that's making four hundred grand, probably. Right, big number. And as a twenty, you know, as a you know, in my mid twenties, you know, twenty five, that sounds pretty enticing. Yeah. So, I said, well, Keith, thanks for the offer. I really like what I'm doing. Let me go talk to my boss. And I told, so I go into my to my boss and I said, hey, I want to, I you know, I've got this offer. It's a six figure offer, but I don't want to quit. I don't expect you to pay me six figures. I want to stay. Take me to 75 grand and I'll stay. Or, you know, uh, you know and, but I want, I want 5% of every deal that I, that I do. Okay. You know, I just want 5% equity. You don't have to pay me on it. I just want a 5% stake in, in all of the deals that we touch. And, and he goes, oh, he, you know, and, and instead of saying, okay, Corey, that's a really nice offer. He literally turns to me, you know, kind of typical New Yorker. Um, he had, he had immigrated from somewhere else. His family was in the clothing business. He'd worked really hard to create what he had. And, and I think he thought I was lying, you know, and I was using it as a negotiation tactic. And he said, who gave you your offer? Well, it's not important. I'm not going to tell you. And he said, well, if it's one of my friends, I'll make sure you don't get that offer. I said, okay, well, it's not a friend of yours, but somebody that I know in real estate. And 
it's just it's a really good offer but i but you're you're not hearing me i'm willing to take half the money to stay here because i believe in in you and i believe in building this company with you and i'm i'm excited and at that point i was his director of acquisitions and we had a few projects we were working on it was really fun and i was i was overseeing the building of a hotel in manhattan and we were buying brownstones up in harlem and renovating them and redoing them and you know, it was like, it was fun. Big stuff. And, and this guy turns to me and he says, if anything, I would lower your salary, not raise your salary. <laughs> and I, I'm just kind of dumbfounded. I said, okay, well, if that's how you feel, I don't want to work for anybody who doesn't value me. Consider right. this my two weeks notice. Because I don't need two weeks. And use some things that I don't know. I don't know what section of the, uh, Say uh, what you of, want. Uh, the podcast we're in, but I won't use those words. But he said, you know, he said, I don't need your two week notice. You're going to get the F out of my office. And I said, okay. And I left and, uh, and, and I said, thank you. And packed up my stuff, headed back to Arizona and uh, started doing real estate. Was the number one salesperson uh, in new home sales by volume for, uh, for the one year that was left in. <laughs> <laughs> in the real estate market, uh, I sold, I think it was 242 or 272 units in one year um, at a new home community, won a MAME award, which is the Central Arizona Home Builders Award. Uh, so I won the MAME award for top producer by volume, which was really crazy. And then Cambridge Properties went from doing 1,200 homes a year in new home sales to doing like 12. I mean, it was like a 99% decrease almost overnight. And, uh, and then I said, okay, well, what am I going to do? And I think I was the only person um, smart enough to say, okay. Uh, and I packed up all my stuff and I actually went to Nicaragua. Did uh, Christian aid work there for a year. You know, while the market didn't do anything here, I figured I'd take whatever I had saved up and go do some good in the world. Helped feed wow. about 20,000 kids every single day. Um, and then once I ran out of money, I called my brother and said, hey, what's happening in Arizona? I'm ready to come <laughs> home. Uh, I, I rented out my condo. My tenant had moved out and kind of like felt like it was time to come back and came back. There were still no homes to sell. Uh, but we had heard that you could buy homes for cheap and renovate them and, you know, at trustee sale. So. We started buying houses in, in uh, Maryvale and renovating them and selling them. We'd buy them for like $20,000, yeah. put another $20,000, $25,000 into them and sell them for seventy to eighty grand. You know, So we were making twenty grand a house. People were getting houses for $70,000. You know, it was like everybody won. I made money. We made the house nice sure. again. And somebody got a good house. So we we did that a lot, uh, and then that kind of migrated, and we'd are, we'd always been luxury agents. We'd always been in the luxury market, uh, which Maryvale is not luxury, by the way. No. Nope. Uh, but we did that, and then you know, and then we went from Maryvale to South Scottsdale, and it still worked. And then we went South Scottsdale to North Scottsdale. It was still working. We we're doing North Central. And then we all of a sudden, you know, we said, okay, are we crazy enough? And we started buying homes at trustee sale in Paradise Valley. We were buying houses at trustee sale because they were all reverting to the bank. So nobody had the cojones to, to spend a million two for a house at trustee sale. And for those of you who don't know, you'd have to come up with $10,000, non-refundable if you got the bid. And then the next day, you had to come up with the rest of it. So, oh, wow. you know, if if you were buying a house at trustee sale for 20 grand, you can come up with 20 grand amongst your friends. You know, sure. that, that, that wasn't a problem. If you're trying to come up with $1.2 million tomorrow, you know, that takes some uh, gymnastics, I guess. And we figured it out and we had some capital partners and, and we did that. And all of a sudden we were doing flips in Paradise Alley and doing it very, very well. And, you know, we were buying these houses that just a year ago or, you know, just four or five years ago were selling for four 
four and a half million dollars and you buy them for a million two. And they needed some paint, they needed carpet, they sometimes they needed new appliances, sometimes you know there were repairs that needed to be done, but nothing major. So we started doing that, and you know we'd make we make good money off of it, and, and we did that until until the market kind of went through all that inventory, and you know, and then we got back to just being real estate agents again, you know, going back to to the basics. But there's always been this this willingness to evolve as the market evolves, and not stay static and rest on our laurels, and saying, okay, where's the opportunity? Let's go do that. Um, you know, and, and you've seen that as, sure. as we've now repositioned and I do a lot of relocation business. Um, mm-hmm. And I have a lot of hospital relationships and I'm, I'm fortunate and blessed to have a lot, of, a lot of buyers that I get to work with, especially in this market as we've changed to a more balanced market and shifting to a buyer's market. It's great to have buyers. You know, I, I have really sad conversations with my sellers right now who go, well, you know, just four months ago, my neighbor sold their house for, you know, 10, 15% more than you're telling me to list my house for. And they got multiple offers and sold it for more than that, you know? So it's just, it's, it's just anticipating where the market's going and, and making sure you're there um, is how to be successful. I just heard like, I think five pivots I counted in, in one story. (laughs) You know, leaving leaving the family business in Phoenix, going to New York, um, getting a position with a with a developer, getting soul crushed by the developer, connecting back with your brother, crushing it, then the, you know having immediate success. The the basically in the final last gas of the the two thousand seven economy, uh, heading to Nicaragua and uh, doing ministry work. And then coming back and flipping houses, oh, six, and then positioning into, um, you know, a traditional real estate market. Um, that's that's really impressive path um, and, and kind of juggling it all as you go. But what I was most, um, not most, but what just caught me my eye on that is that you started small um, in each variation and kept building and compounding. Um, and, and probably, you know, you start with the $20,000 risk. Uh, in Maryville, and you end with the the one point two million dollar risk in PV. You recognized yeah. success, but you didn't leapfrog. Didn't sound like you leapfrogged some of the steps to get you there. No, you know, I have always taken a very conservative approach. Uh, there are probably people who will get who will be much more successful than I am. Um, I just like to sleep at night more than they do. Uh, and, and you know, there, there are people who have, who are willing to risk it all because they believe in something. Um, and they've been very successful, but for every one of those people, I could probably give you 10 other names of people who believed wholeheartedly in something. And it was a good idea they just missed on timing or they missed because of something that was outside of their control and it was ruinous. And I know, you know, I, I'm blessed that I grew up in the real estate business and I know a lot of developers. Um, and I know a lot of those people who have lost it all. And, and I've sold some of their houses where they thought, Hey, mm-hmm. I'm just one deal away from, from the big, you know, from, from making it again. And I'm looking at them going, you're 80. You're not one deal away from anything. Like, yeah, you know, you need to be conserving at this point, yeah. not, not trying to risk it all in black. You know, it's, it's not the roulette table, you know, but I've, I've seen those, those people who have done very well in life and they've, and it's a very interesting arc where they've gone three or four times and they, you know, they're like Icarus. They've, they've flown up to the sun and they've flown down to the ocean and they've flown back up to the sun and they've gone down to the ocean, you know, but eventually they got so close to the sun that they burned the wax off of their wings and came crashing down and drowned at sea. And that's a, you know, I've just made the decision that slow and steady wins the race. Yeah. And, um, and that I'd rather be, uh, well provided for and, and, and good and you know i don't 
and, and we took the same model on our when we did our flip. I, I never wanted to to set the market. I always just wanted to be in the market, and I found that that was that was my formula of success because I because that buyer who bought from me knew that they were getting value, and if they knew they were getting value, they were happy and they were going to close the transaction. But if I was pushing value and trying to be the top of the market, what would happen is that buyer, it was just, it wasn't a fun experience. They were beating you up over everything and, and their expectations weren't realistic. But if I, if I could deliver value to them, still make a profit, everybody was happy. And, and I've taken that same approach in my real estate business where I've said, how do I deliver value to my clients? And make them feel really happy and successful. And we've changed, you know, over the years. It was, you know, Cambridge was think urban, think Cambridge, you know, or we know, or, you know, it's like we were the urban guys. We were this, we were that. We were, um, you know, and, and over the years, I, you know, I, I went and trademarked it and I got my brother to finally buy into it. But we changed our tagline and trademarked it, which is your best interest always. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I've, I've been really successful in real estate just in the fact that I don't look at the transaction. The transaction is really kind of secondary to me. It's the relationship with the client. That's the primary thing for me. And, and I realize that I don't need to always maximize what I make on each transaction. I need to make sure that my client's taken care of and really happy with the outcome. And, and then at the end of the day, I'm, I'm good, you know, and, and that leads to better business. And, you know, that's, it's been really successful for Keith and I, um, it's been really, it's really helped me in my, as I've gone through and my clients, you know, I, I don't do videos like you're having me do right now. I don't do podcasts. I don't, I don't do a lot of that social media, um, because to steal a line from Russell Shaw, you know, there's there's two kinds of people in the world. There's the people you know and the people you don't know. All these real estate agents are focused on who they don't know, but they forget about who they know, and they neglect their own relationships. And and I just said, hey, I'm going to focus on those relationships and take care of them, and through them, other good things happen, and that served me really really well. Yeah, and I think it goes back to that that ministry component, right? Um, you know, it's it's service minded. It's taking care of others, it's putting other people's interests before your own. And, and I do that in, you know, and I try to tell everybody all the time, you want to find people who are going to go that extra mile, who are going to put other people first. And, and that's what's going to make your, your business successful. You know, we have people approach us all the time and want to work with Cambridge Properties that I don't, I don't allow them to come in because I, I just don't think that they're the right fit. Either they don't have the experience and, you know, I'm not good at training new agents. I'm good at training agents who are that $5 million agent to get them to $10 million or that $10 million to $20 million. Yeah. I can take a, an agent who's already doing well and show them how to get to how to double their book of business. I, I don't have the time to show people how to write a contract. I'm really good at it. I just don't. I don't have the time to invest in right. that way. Yeah, it's not your best use. Yeah. Um, but if you're good with people and you, you know how to take care of people, I can show you a lot. You dropped, uh, some gold in there and, and, um, I mean, <laughs> I just, I want to really reiterate your, your tagline that you've, you've newly adopted or recently adopted, but your best interest uh, always two or, two or three years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Trademark. Yeah. Uh, that's, I mean, that's awesome. And and I think you, you hit on the people that I see that are successful in this business and the people that we actually aim to, to kind of target in our business to add to our team is, is service-based first. I think it really reflects well, um, during the stress, um, of the conversation I've said in past podcasts that, that I think at some point in their life, everybody should work in a restaurant. And yours was happenstance in New York <laughs> through, through well, I, I worked before that in restaurants. Yeah. I mean, I, I grew up working in restaurants, but yeah. But it creates a high stress environment that is um, that your goal is to achieve a tip that you really have no control of. But the better experience mm-hmm. that you can create, theoretically, it should be higher. 
Um, but it's not always. So you deal with disappointment and you deal with stress and you deal with wins and losses and so on and so forth. And, and that's, that's the game of business. That's the game of real estate. Um, and it sounds like you've recognized well, my, that. My stepdad used to always tell me, he said, if you're going to eat a crap sandwich, he used a different word, but if you're going to eat a crap sandwich, <laughs> make sure it's got really good bread. Yeah. And, you know, for, for those who are, you know, younger, uh, bread is a euphemism for money, you know, <laughs> and sometimes you got to eat the crap sandwich, but if the pay is right, we'll eat it. And, and that's, yeah. that's, that's actually been one of my distinguishing factors in this business is I'm really good at when people are throwing mud and, and just crazy because it's a high stress environment sometimes in real estate of just not taking it personally and being fine with it. And sometimes it gets yeah. to me, but, but sure. you know, our, our job in real estate. And I try to remind my, my team members and the people in my brokerage this all the time. Our job is to take something that people will only do one or, you know, one to five times in their life on average, right? They'll either buy right. one house and live in it forever, or they'll buy a house every five or six years as their life changes when they're adults. It's overwhelming. It's intimidating. It's all of these things that they don't know what it is. You know, oh, what do I do here? What do I do? It's like this sure. is a stressful environment. And I have to remind the team that, you know, you and I do this every single day. You know, for you, Sean, you see houses with weird things all the time. Yep. But that doesn't mean it's bad. It's just quirky. And, you know, and it's our job to ally those fears for our clients and let them know, hey, I got this. You're okay. Um, I still maintain I'm probably, uh, I, of all the real estate agents you know, I probably know the most in an inspection. Yep. Um, you know, and that goes back to my flipping days. But yep. it also goes back to wanting to understand why it is and and having making relationships with my home inspectors, you know, and before you, uh, you know, I had a home inspector who was great. His name was Alan. He spent a lot of time uh, helping me understand things so that I would understand them for my clients. Um, and 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 that's important. I think that's a big step that's often overlooked in inspections. And I. I'm going to go back two seconds and just say I prep anybody that's training with us that Corey has a very high home IQ. <laughs> and if something's not working, you're going to go over there and, and dink with it until you figure out how it works. You'll spend 15 minutes just to say, oh, yeah, the oven works. <laughs> or, or the, I think Andrew took a video of you the other day messing with a light or a window that they couldn't get open. No, a window that the guy told me he couldn't get open. And I went over and opened it. Yeah, well. I mean, it was behind not, a couch that, that you know yeah. that the person never opened. And he's like, yep, yeah, it's stuck. And I went over there and I kind of messed with it a little bit. I opened it up. I, I took it off the tinges, opened it up towards me, looked at it, made sure it was okay, closed yeah, it back so you, up, and then opened it. You know, yeah. but it was it was that extra step yeah. to see what was really <laughs> wrong with the window and if there was anything wrong with the window. And then he's like, okay. He goes, but you tried really hard. I said, yeah. <laughs> I go, you can say that the window is, you know, difficult to operate, but it's, Kind of operates. <laughs> I mean, I had an inspector, not from your company, and they couldn't figure out how to make a brand new range work. And it was yeah. a high end range, it was a wolf range. Um, and I had to open up the control panel and turn it on, you know, and hit the little button for him. And then he could turn on the gas. It was, you know, it's kind of a child safety feature that you got to open up the face. You got to then turn it on and say it's okay to turn it on. And then you can turn on the gas and say, oh, how would you do that? I don't know. I messed with so, it. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, I couldn't get anything to work. Go, okay, cool. Well, I, so. I, I always appreciate that about you. But I also think it's, um, I think it's an interesting step that I don't hear often is that you took the time to work with an inspector to learn that part of the transaction. Cause I, I think it's over often overlooked. I mean, in some markets, the real estate brokerages are telling agents not to even go to the inspection because it adds risk and liability. Um, cause they may open their mouth or stick their foot in their mouth. 
um, where I disagree with that statement, and I'm not a lawyer, but I think the moment that we start um, stepping away but from my any job, of that risk. My job as a real estate agent isn't to defer liability. Yeah, exactly. My job as a real estate agent is to protect my client's interests, not right. my interests. So step into so it. not showing up to the inspection is protecting the real estate agent and the real estate brokerage's interests much more than protecting the client's interests, right? Right. And my job is to help them through a very stressful experience of buying a home, which is exciting, exhilarating, and stressful, and scary, and all these other things. That's my job is to be calm waters in a stormy sea. And, um, and if I can't show up to the inspection, that's on me, and and, and I should I probably shouldn't be their agent now. Now there's there's life happens. There's emergencies. There's things like that. I get it, but I go back to that's blocking and tackling. I mean, right. I never go. I once my house is if I have a listing, once the house is under contract, I pull that lockbox because I want the home inspector to have to go through me. I want the home appraiser to have to go through me. I want all of those things because I want to control that process as best I can. Make sure the house is ready for whoever's showing up and what they're showing up for. And if you can't do that as an agent, if you're too busy for your client to do that as an agent, you shouldn't be an agent. You should go find a different line of work. Or you should become the manager at the company because you're too busy and you should find agents who actually want to take care of their clients. Huh. Interesting. I haven't had an appraiser go into a house since probably 2005 without me. Wow. And that's from, you know, a low, not a lower, lower level price point to top of the food chain. Doesn't it matter. doesn't matter yeah. if it's a, if it's a little condo or it's a, cause, cause if I don't show up and ask that appraiser, what, you know, Hey, what do you know of the area? If I don't ask that appraiser how long they've been in the business, if I don't walk with that appraiser to understand how they're approaching this, I don't ask them what comps they have. If I don't give them the comps that I have on how we got to this price, mm-hmm. if we don't meet appraisal, how do I have any ground to stand on? Right. But if I came with the comps and the comps are good, and I said, hey, here's the comps that I have. And I show those to him or her, and I give that to the appraiser. And then they don't use good comps. And I said, well, whoa, 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 I gave you the house over on Elm Street. Why didn't you use that? Oh, well, blah, 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 blah. It's within this amount of square footage, same kind of finish levels, blah, 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 blah. I need to know my stuff just as well as they do so that if there's an issue, it's okay. Or... Conversely, for the agents who are listening, if you show up and you know you've got an appraisal issue and you're forthright with your appraiser and you go, hey, I know you got some work to do on this one. I kind of saw this and I kind of saw that. And hey, you know, this is a little bit outside the box, but I have this comp for you. And you try to help them do their job. They're going to be, you know, they're not going to lie about value and they're not going to fudge the numbers but you're at least going to get the benefit of the doubt if you respect them enough to show up care about the work they do and value them as a human and not look at them as the enemy you're going to get a much better outcome and that's been my experience and i'll tell you i very very rarely ever have appraisal issues do you think that the chatter amongst the appraisers is that Corey Michigan has a high appraisal IQ too. <laughs> Probably. I mean, I get a lot of appraisers who walk in and they're like, Hey, Corey, how you doing? Cause they know me. Sure. Because I've shown up. I mean, and, and when you're in paradise Valley or Arcadia or the Biltmore and it's a multi-million dollar house, most of the banks who do those higher price point values, you know, there's, there's a whole, system for appraisers where they put it into a system and it fits out a name and you know it's like charlie and the chocolate factory i've got the golden ticket you know like you're running down the street to go do your appraisal um 
most of the banks that have private client services that do higher end loans, there's only about a dozen of those appraisers in town, so they know me. But even on the popular price point, those appraisers know me, and and I call the I call the the seller's agent when I represent a buyer, and I ask them, "Are you showing up for the appraiser? Yes or no?" And if they're not, I'll show up for the appraiser. Hmm. Now, some agents will tell me, "Hey, that's not." You know, you want if if it's not going to appraise for value, you want to you know you want your client to be able to get it for less. And what I would counter is my client might not get it at all because that seller right. is going to say, "Well, you were willing to pay," and the buyer is going, "Well, the lender didn't say they would appraise it at that, and I don't have the additional funds." I said, "If I'm not there to make sure, or somebody's not there to make sure that that home appraises, we got problems." Well, that's why I'm over there. So by, and here's what I see in all of this and recognize the pattern, but by pulling the lockbox, you have to be there, forces you to be there to open the house for the inspector. Mm -hmm. When the inspector is there, you can, you can share your experience on the house and help them out a little bit. But what you're doing is, is you're not playing on the phone. You're, and this was, you probably started doing this before there were phones. There were the old Motorola or the Zach Morris phones. Uh, but you're learning what they do. I wasn't in the business for the brick phone. I was not. <laughs> no. I, flip phone, yes. Nokia candy bar phone, yes. Flip, you know, the, <laughs> the, you know, Locked. you had to kind of crank it all the way up to your ear. That that one I wasn't there for. Thanks, Sean. Sean yep. I think we're the same age. I know. Easy, turbo. Pretty close. Um, but <laughs> you just got professional before I chose to. I got stuck in Hawaii. Yeah. Um, but you're Some paying people attention. people would say it wasn't stuck. Yeah. yeah. You're paying attention. You're Mind learning the yeah. You're learning what the appraiser do, does so that you can have a better appraisal experience. And then uh, it just sounds like it's repetitious in your, in your professional strategy to be present so that you can play offense instead of needing to play defense when things go awry. And again, it goes back to taking care of the client. Yeah. I'm trying to get the outcome the client wants. And if I'm not there in the process, you can't change the outcome from the stands. You got to be in the field. You got to be on the court, playing right. the game and involved. And if you're not, it's going it, to, it, it potentially messes up the outcome that your client was hoping for. Right. And I'm there, you know, for, and some agents don't like it. But I make sure that my clients understand and require when I'm the selling agent, I make sure that they know why it's important for me to be there for an for an inspection. Mm-hmm. And I've had agents tell me, hey, you can't be there during, during my inspection walkthrough with the inspector. And I'll say, well, why not? And they go, well, they don't want you hearing anything. I go, well, you're required under the contract to give me a copy of the inspection. You're required to deliver to me anything that you have as it relates to inspection. My seller requires that I'm here anytime somebody shows the house. You're showing the house. I'm going to be here. Now, you want me to shut up and not say anything and not answer any questions? No problem. But you bet your bottom dollar I'm going to be there so that I can hear from the, from the inspector how how much of hay they made of that issue, you know? Because yeah. all these agents will come in and say, "Oh my goodness, the you know I'm dealing with this right now." Somebody's telling me the roof needs to be replaced. I go, no, no, no. Your inspector said it was a 90 pound pack, which is a very nice, durable uh, underlayment for for roofing. Sure. You know, most people put in 20 on the cheap houses, 45 on the nice houses. This is 90. It's how much thicker it is, you know, because they're measuring it in weight, you know, and, and thickness. That it's a 90-pound pad on a high-end home in a high-end neighborhood. The inspector found absolutely no issues except for some, you know, some detail work that should be addressed. And the inspector, by their own appellation, said, oh, you probably got another 10, 20 years on this roof. And you're telling me, no, they've only got... 10 years. He said, okay, great. We'll take the low end. It's 10 years. You didn't right. buy a new house. The house is 30 years old, like, you know, 20 years old. What do you, what do you want me to do here? 
the sellers aren't buying you in the roof. So I'm, I'm dealing with that push from an agent. I'm going, you're crazy. Right. We're, 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 you know, I heard the inspector. I was there. I know what they said. Don't try to sell me a bill of goods that I know is, is wrong. Your defense is already created. Yeah. Huh. Um. um. <laughs> hey, question for you, Sean. How many people, you know, you, you inspect houses every single sure. day. Your team members are there. Out of curiosity, what percentage would you say of buyer's agents are there for the walkthrough with their clients? And then the next question is, what percentage of seller's agents are there? Um. Buyer's agents are there more than most of the time. So, uh, you know, it's a high percentage, um, 90-ish percent. Um, okay. You know, yeah, and okay. it's the, it's like that, it's that, um, it's like that segment of, you know, life gets in the way 10% of the time or something to that extent. Yeah. Um, sure. Seller's agent is, is very low, 1% maybe. Um, 1%, one yeah. out of 100. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's very low. <laughs> You know, it, it the the number probably trickles up in the luxury um, markets. The luxury listing agents are often more often to be there for a review, um, and even to greet the inspectors, turn on the lights, uh, set the house yeah. up for success. Um, but you know, we're we're talking a uh, vast majority of houses that we inspect. We do seventy thousand dollar mobile homes to ten million dollar um, luxury homes. So. There's a broad spectrum in there, but if if we go across wow. the two thousand houses a year, um, you know, on listing agents, we'll, we'd maybe see what is one percent, twenty of that, twenty, wow. yeah, forty maybe, on the higher stuff. Yeah, you guys just saw me a couple of weeks ago on a walkthrough. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> I mean, I think that's a nice service. It, and what I keep hearing from you is that you're playing offense and not defense, and you're. You're instead of needing to scramble, you know, if you weren't there and they say the roof is is shot, well, the next thing you're doing is calling a roofer to get the true story or looking at the inspection report, but then you want your own opinion. So you're creating more by taking that hour or two of your day and spending time at the property of your clients um, and wasting that by being there in the inspection, you're saving yourself 20 hours of work on the back end. Um, yeah. You talked about flips too. And I think people are particularly fond of flips because they're on TV. Um, and it's only gaining more and more traction. But oh, I've got a soapbox on that. But yeah. But you, you know, seemingly things were going really good. How did you know how to pivot and get out? You know, you, you go from $20,000 houses to $1.2 million houses. The greed addiction says, let's find the $2.5 million houses. Let's find the $5 million house and keep building that that but instead you said i've had enough maybe i don't know maybe you still do a little bit of it um and you said it's time to refocus i i still do probably three to five a year okay um what i watched was i watched margins come down uh -huh. um and 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 the other the other challenge i have in in flips is uh and I'm sure you see this as a home inspector. Yeah. There's such a, there's such a broad spectrum of quality. And my challenge is when I do a flip, I only know how to do it one way, which is all the way. Yeah. Um, and I hire licensed contractors to do the work. And I know a number of agents who don't. Uh, and they, they're doing their own flips. And the Arizona Department of Real Estate, the Registrar of Contractors, Arizona State Law requires that if you do anything of more than $1,200 in value, right. that that contractor has to be licensed if you intend on doing that work to sell the property. What I mean by that is if you're, if you're doing something to fix up a house, so you can make it better for when you sell it. And you did that within two years of your sale date. Arizona state law requires that that work be done by a licensed and bonded contractor. Correct. So you want to put in new floors 
and you spend more than $1,200, contractor. You want to put in a cabinetry? Contractor. Because I haven't found anybody who's put in, you know, more than a bathroom cabinet for more than 12, you know, for less than $1,200. Yeah. Because it's not $1,200 of labor or $1,200 of material. It's $1,200. And, and what people don't know is actually the Arizona Department of Real Estate requires that you put the name and ROC number of the contractor who did the work in the contract. Hmm. That's a new requirement. Yeah, that was about a year ago that they started saying that. So you had a contractor who did the work. You need their name and information in there so that if a buyer has a problem, they know who to go to. Yeah. And, and you know, in our agent community, uh, unfortunately, is either unaware of the rules by which they're to play or blatantly skirt them because they would rather not. And, and, you know, as I've watched labor go up, I mean, I, I just did a remodel on a high-rise condo. It's 3,000 square foot. We did new floors, new kitchen, new cabinetry, new bathrooms. New, I mean, we touched every, we didn't move any walls, but we touched everything, right? Right. And it cost me 300 something thousand dollars to do that remodel. I mean, I remember there was a day where I could build houses for $350,000. For sure. And that's what my remodel cost was. So. It's just kind of an interesting, uh, as I've watched labor costs go up, I, I just, I've been afraid. I, I've seen how long it's taking to do remodels and how expensive remodels are getting um, from labor and material. And, and that's why I've retrenched back because I can't make sense of it to make money. And the horizon's too long that I don't, that I just don't feel comfortable. So. It's got to be a really juicy deal for me to take the risk on it. Huh. And you have enough other stuff in the works that you can, you say, well, yeah. it'd be nice to have this, but I don't have to do this right now. And you put that tool set aside. Yeah, I mean, luckily, I, I sell, you know, my brother and I together probably, you know, you know, every year we sell between probably 125 and $200 million worth of real estate. So. Um, I can do that. Yeah, that's a big number. <laughs> so, and and really, our team is it's it's he and I, and just a few agents. I mean, it's a it's actually a team. Whereas, when I'm talking to those team members every single day, we're figuring out yeah. who's where, who's doing what, and it's it's a real team. It's not, you know, there are people who list themselves as teams, but they're a whole brokerage with a few hundred agents, and it's a Team, I don't know. Tell you what, when you can line up everybody in a line as the team leader and tell me their names and their spouse's names, then I'll let you know that you've got a team. Yeah. You know. Yeah. You guys are tight. We're tight. We hang out. We talk. You know. So it's it's they're they're good people. And that is one thing I wanted to to address too. I mean, tell me the history of. Cambridge. It sounds like, you know, I, I don't specifically know the start date and so on and so forth, but it sounds like it's been around for some time. I helped come up with the name while I was a while I was probably junior high. Um yeah. elementary school. I don't know. Uh no, my brother my brother left. He was working with a developer uh in development and as a side hustle he was selling houses to his friends. And <laughs> And all of a sudden, he was making so much money as a real estate agent. The developer said, "Hey, Keith, I think you'd be good at being a developer, but you're making too much money as a real estate agent. You'll be really good at that. Just go do yeah. that. Like yeah. you're going to make just as much money and not have the risk and do that." So he left, and in 1994, he started uh, started Cambridge Properties, and then in 2000, I joined him. Uh, so, yeah, Cambridge Properties and family-owned shop, just kind of the, the two brothers, Michigan, running around mm-hmm. trying to make hay of it. And, uh, and then we've had a lot of really good agents. I mean, yep. I, can, I, can list, I can list a lot of agents that people in the industry know who got their start with us and, wow. and did really well working with us. And, uh, and I'm proud of that legacy. I wish they were all still here, but 
um, you know, that's, that's business. He, you know, the, um, I forget who it was. I want to say it was, maybe it was Larry Ellison or, you know, somebody who's made a ton of money, uh, said, train your people well enough that they can leave you and be successful, but treat them well enough that if they do leave and are successful, they'll want to come back. Yeah. And, uh, and we've had a few people boomerang and then we've had some people try to boomerang and we're like, no, we're good. Um, yeah. You know, it's just, just life. Right. Yeah. So that's, yeah that's, that's, that's the history. We're small brokerage, super nimble. We flirted with getting big before. And, and what I found in brokerage business is you either have to get really big and have hundreds of agents, or you got to be really small and have just a few. Uh, it's that middle ground that you just don't get the efficiencies. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt that you're, you're smaller. You're not small because um, you're, you're small. stature in the we city. We are small, but we, we punch outside our weight class. We really do. Yeah. I, mean, I, I mean, in essence, we're a small brokerage. I have 60-plus agents, um, 10 people on our team, including some, some staff. And, yeah. you know, my team does I, I don't know I don't know what number we did last year it's in the business journal but you know we were number 20 in the business journal um you know and yeah. it's it's a high hundred million dollar number yeah but you know people look at that and they go oh my god Corey and Keith must be killing it think how much money they're making you know I will tell you to make my team work and to do that well I probably only get about a third of the commission that I split between my brother and I Yeah, to incentivize my team to take care of an office, to pay everybody to do all the things that we do. You know, our, our clients go, Oh my goodness, you're making how many percentage points on this deal? And I'm going, yeah, but yeah, yeah there's a ton in the background that nobody thinks about. Yeah. So anyway, uh, oh, you're um you got a lot going on and you're taking on a new endeavor or trying to take on a new endeavor um i am and you're in the midst of it and as i alluded to before you have um now political science um all around campus <laughs> campus oh, all around campus. all city. around the campus <laughs> yeah um, vote Corey for student body president uh <laughs> No, I'm, I'm, you know, and going back to, to that service-minded mentality, um, I've always been civically-minded. I've always wanted to leave my, my community, my world better off than, yeah. than I found it. Uh, so I'm running for the Central Arizona Water Conservation District Board. Really long name uh, for, which is really the group that oversees the, the CAP, the Central Arizona Project. Um, and I just, I think that good sound water policy is important for all of us. And, uh, if we want our children to be able to live in this desert, to enjoy this desert, just like we did, we've got to take care of it. And, uh, we got to make sure that, uh, we continue on the legacy of those who have come before us and continue to stretch that drop of water as far as we can. And, uh, and even after that drop of water has been used, recycle it and treat it and you know put it back into into our system so um there's a lot of wonderful things that are happening with uh in and around the central part of arizona for, for how we use water we can do better um we can continue to innovate but you know crazy things to think about arizona uses the same amount of water today as we did in 1957 people are look at that and go what how is that even possible but you know, through innovation of our homes and the way we build homes and the amount of water, they use so much less water now than they used to through innovations in farming where, you know, you know, some farmers are literally watering their crops below the soil so that you don't have evaporation. I mean, there's, there's crazy things that we've done yeah, for sure. better and, uh, and how do we continue to innovate and how do we continue to build on the legacy of the CAP? And I'm, I'm excited to run for that. Um, shameless plug uh, you can go to coreyforcap.com c-o-r-y and 
F-O-R-C-A-P.com and find out more about that. But um, yeah, I'm running for the, the CAP board and decided to add my voice and make sure that people hear uh, what my perspective is on that because I, I take a long, long vision on it. So happy to do it. Um, clearly, it's it's an important part of life, but I, I can tell that you've been reflecting on on this maybe journey for a while because I remember vividly, and I hadn't been back in Arizona a long time. I, I don't remember if it was 2018 or 2019, um, but we were up at a property in like the Cape Creek area. It was it was probably 115 degrees, and it was that that summer where it was every day was 115 degrees. And, and we talked about it a little bit and you just said, you know, we just aren't getting the monsoons that we used to when we were kids. And it what you know, the city is changing and it's, it's the heat pocket of Phoenix that, mm-hmm. that is encapsulating. And, 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 you know, I've also been thinking about that a lot, but I think it's, it's really great to see you do something about it um, and, or try and do something yeah. about it, at least become an elected official and, and, and it's just smart policy, you know. It's just how do we come up with smart policy that then, you know, it, and, and why I'm excited about this is it's a nonpartisan race. Uh, and while I've had my my involvement on the partisan side for sure, it's nonpartisan, and you know, water's kind of for everyone. It's hard. It's hard to be real sure. divisive about water because we all kind of need it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I'm I'm drinking it now. I you know, <laughs> I, I, um. But, you know, one of the crazy statistics, I was talking with the people down at the Arizona Farm Bureau, and, and people think that the average person uses about 100 gallons a day in their use in, in the United States. And and he he said, there's actually a whole shadow amount of water that you have no idea that you use, because you're just thinking about the water that you use for your shower and for your toilet and for your drinking. and you know, and bathing and, you know, and we just think of that and the water that you put on your grass and, and that's how they get to that. Like, you know, they take all the households in America with all the people and they divide and they're like, yeah, we use about 90 gallons per day per person. But he said, it's, it's really more like 12 to 1800 gallons a day when you add up all the water that went into your food or the cotton shirt that you're oh, wearing yeah. or the jeans that you're wearing or the shoe, you know, or the plastic, you don't understand that water goes into plastic. You know, all these other places that that water's part of that chain that you didn't even think about. Um, the ink in your pen, all these things took water. And, um, you know, the salad that you're eating took water. The, the meat that you eat that took a lot of water. You know, sure. so oh, for sure. there's this whole hidden, hidden amount of water that, you know, it's a thousand something, you know, a thousand something gallons a day that took so that you could enjoy the life that you that you lead. I there was a there was a quote that I heard the other day, and I can't remember the name of the builder, but they said they're just going to keep building in Phoenix until one day when they go to turn on the water tap, there's nothing there, and then they're going to move to another city. And they're wrong. Yeah, what I hear is that you're getting involved again on the offense, which some, tends to be, yeah. you know, your the theme of get involved early um, and make the change before it's a problem. Or, or, or a better way of saying it is how can I be proactive instead of reactive? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. How, how can I take, how can I take action now? So I don't have to react later. Um, and, and that builder is, I'm sorry, kind of an idiot, but, uh, they just don't understand the water issue in Arizona. We're fine. We're, we are actually, we're very good on water in Arizona. Um, doesn't mean we can't be better. Doesn't mean you should be willy-nilly about it, but we're very good on water. And we've developed that system since the beginning of Arizona. I mean, sure. the Hohokam Indians were here creating canals long before uh, anybody knew where Arizona was except for those people living here. Um, but to that point, Keep in mind, any builder who builds has to, by state law, secure and prove up that that house they built in that subdivision has a hundred-year supply of water. Okay. Of, of, you know, so we we do these things along the way to ensure 
that you're not just out there wildcatting. Now, the caveat is if you're building one house on one acre out in the boondocks, there's no rules. But if you're building a subdivision of five or more houses, you have to get a shared water supply. Right. And that either has to come through a municipality or you have to buy well rights or you have to secure that. You know, I don't want to get into the weeds, but you have to prove that you have water for a hundred years. And that's a, that's, that's a, that's a pretty high hurdle to jump over. And, you know, and keep in mind since the beginning of Arizona, to even today, only 30% of our water gets used in our cities and towns. The rest is used in agriculture. Um, but that statistic has held steady since, since the 1950s. So, um, we can grow, we can grow exponentially. We just have to do it smart. Yeah. Yeah. And just plan them. I mean, we don't, we don't want to yeah. pay for the sins of our mistakes mm-hmm. now. Um, Correct. So when is the, um, when is the date that we I'm, cast our vote for you? I'm on the November ballot. Just make sure you flip it over on the backside. Yeah. Uh, I'm on the back where all the school districts are and the taxing districts and all the races that are really confusing and there's no Republican or Democrat letter behind your name. Everybody's just running on their name only. So it's really hard to figure out who's who. But remember Corey Michigan for the Central Arizona Water Conservation District Board. But yeah. And if so, we'll do that. And if there's an opportunity for real estate needs, how do people find you? Chambersproperties.com. So uh, happy to happy to do that as well. Uh, the, that's that's my passion: helping people find homes, helping people with their homes. Uh, I enjoy I enjoy helping people. So uh, Chambersproperties.com is our website, um, and happy to help in any way I can, and you know, be a resource to whoever's got questions. Um, Corey, thank you for your time. Uh, I've got a lot out of it personally. Um, I've seen a lot of, uh, no, I mean, I learned a lot. I think it, I think it's phenomenal and I appreciate, um, you are busy and you are proactive and, um, and it, it it bleeds through to your success. So congratulations and and thanks for joining me. Thanks for putting this together, Sean. You have a wonderful day. You too. Thank you for listening to Just Another Real Estate Podcast. For the latest episodes, please subscribe and be sure to follow Dwell Inspect Arizona on Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. To contact Dwell Inspect Arizona, call us at 480-867-4599. If you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, email our team at office at dwellinspectaz.com.